the main emphasis of these last chapters of the book had to do with the uncertainties of life. We just do not know what a day will bring forth. No one can guess what will meet them at the next turn of the way. But God, remember our key verse in chapter 9? Look back there in chapter 9, verse 1. For I have taken all this to heart and explained it, that the righteous man, the wise men, and their deeds are in the hands of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. But this he knows. If he's trusting the Lord Jesus Christ, if he has been washed in the blood of Christ and his sins have been forgiven, and if he's been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, if he's, if he's accepted this word of God and is ordering his life according to it, the righteous and the wise man knows that God holds him and everything he does or everything that is done to him God holds it all in his hand. We are perfectly secure in the midst of the uncertainties of this life. Now we're dealing with the second segment of this section. We began there in the 11th verse of the ninth chapter. We began there last week and we saw that the scene here is that in the midst of this uncertainty, we are to faithfully continue serving our Lord. And we pointed out the facts of this uncertainty was the one thing we pointed out first of all, seen in the unexpected, seen in the unpredictable things that come into our lives. And then it goes on to point out to us factors of uncertainty. He describes different events. He just takes the time to describe certain distinct different events that can take place in the life. You don't know they're going to happen. You don't know what to do in the midst of them. They are frustrating many times. But in the midst of it, God guides, God holds you in his hands and accomplishes his purpose in your life. One of the things, he describes, by the way, six of them. One of them, we saw last week, is that good, accomplished, often goes unrewarded. And that's a shock to us. When we've done all we can to help someone, to do what God expects to do, and then nobody even so much as notices we've done. That comes as a shock many times. Another one is that good is often marred by sin. Oh, we have the sin nature within us. You know? We don't know. And we need to be very careful because one little slip can ruin our testimony, marring a life that we've been living for God. The next thing he reminds us of, that good is often hindered by official pressure. Government often opposes the ways of God, but godliness, godly composure, you'll remember from the text, 
gives us the answer and teaches us how to conduct ourselves in the midst of that pressure. Another thing that we saw last week is that good is often endangered by common, everyday accidents. They happen almost in every family, almost in every life, come these accidents. And they seem to do that they're going to destroy the very reason for living. And yet we are assured by God. We are to take the necessary steps to sharpen ourselves as an act in the hand of God that we may be able to use by Him to accomplish the purpose He planned through us and to realize that we and our acts are held in His hands and accidents cannot destroy God's purpose that He has planned through us. And this brings us then to the thing that we want to begin with this morning. Good is often spoiled by foolish talking. Will you look with me, please? Beginning there in the eleventh verse of the tenth, uh, the twelfth verse rather, of the tenth chapter. Look at words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious, while the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of his talking is folly, and the end of it is wicked madness. Yet the fool multiplies words. No man knows what will happen, and who can tell him what will come after him? The toil of a fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go to the city. Now you'll notice that in this passage, in these, this series of proverbs, Solomon contrasts the words of two kinds of men. First of all, is the word of the wise man. Words from the mouth of a wise man. Now you remember, we have studied this in the past. We do not need to go back and repeat it. In this book, the wise man is not the man who is wise in the wisdom of this world with all kinds of academic credentials to prove his wisdom in this world. The wise man, according to this book, is the man who accepts the truth of the Word of God. He receives the values that God has put into his book. He accepts the truths that are explained here. And he believes them. He trusts them. And he walks in them. They become the light to his path before him. Now he is the wise man. Now it says, the words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious. You know, every time I read that, I have to ask myself, Harold, how did you say it this week? I wish I could tell you that I always said it right. 
I always said it graciously. You and I will accept at the face value of the scriptures and we will believe them and really trust them and rest them. What we say to other people will be gracious. Well, that doesn't mean that we're going to be heavy talkers and we always have to be talking in stilted, you know, biblical language. And all of our life, every single one of our words has a halo over it. Doesn't mean that. Doesn't referring to that at all. But it does mean that what we say and how we say it comes out empowered by the grace of God to perform the work of the grace of God in those who hear. Can you turn with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 4? There we receive a, an exhortation. First of all, a negative exhortation in, Hebrew, in Galatians, I mean in uh, Ephesians chapter 4 and in verse 29. First, a negative exhortation. Let no unwholesome words proceed from your mouth. Watch your language. No unwholesome words to come out of our mouth. There are enough good, beautiful, expressive words in our language. We don't need the garbage. If you need the garbage in order to express yourself, you ought to put a lock on your mouth and throw the key away. There are not good words. Use them. But no unwholesome words proceed from your mouth. But, he says, only such a word as is good for edification. According to the need of the moment. But it may get great to those who hear. Your words, my words, that I share with other people are to be designed to comfort, to encourage, to build up, to strengthen. Now, that doesn't tell us how to do it. We may use numerous words to do it. We may use, if we wish, great theological words to do it. Most people won't, won't know what you're talking about, but go ahead and use those great theological words to try to do it. But God just says in your ordinary conversation, using your ordinary words that you use, use them to convey to those around about you. That which will encourage them. That which will comfort them. That which will draw them closer to God to think about God and to see the praise and glory of God. Manifest to people, he says, through your language, your words, your conversation, the ways of God to people. That's why he's trying to do. And if you come back, please, the book of Ecclesiastes, notice he talks now about another kind of a man. And he holds it in contrast with the wise man. He says in verse 12, while the lips of a fool consume it. Now, who is a fool? Most people think that that refers to an insane person. 
or an emotionally disturbed person, or a person who doesn't have all of the, the marbles upstairs that he's supposed to have. See? Or he's one of those persons that, uh, you know, just talks slightly and, and doesn't have anything really to say. That's the kind of a person I think is described by the word fool in the Bible. Notice if you're careful and make a study of the use of the word fool in the Bible, you discover that it has a much more specific meaning than that. Look at one of them in Psalm 14. Turn with me, please, to Psalm 14. And in verse 1, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does this. Who is a fool? Now you remember that there was this man who was bragging and talking about the fact that he didn't believe there was a God. He was waxing eloquent. And one dear old lady was standing down listening to him waxing eloquent and she shook her head. He said, sir, I don't know what to call you. In the Bible it says a fool says in his heart there is no God. And you grab it right out publicly. So I don't know what to call you. The point is really this to the one. Just go look at most of the literature that is being written today. Listen to the great sounding words that come from our leaders today. Listen to the stuff that you're taught in our universities today. Listen to the conversation of the average person you run into today. And do you know what the summary is? A complete ignoring of God. Ignores the fact that God is and that he is the rewarder of those that diligently seek for him, that he is the God of this earth, that he is the Lord God Almighty, and that he is doing things upon this earth according to his own plan. They are completely ignoring. That is foolish talk. That is the talk of a fool. When you and I speak out, and what we say is not coming forth from a consciousness of God and his evaluation of things and his presence and his work, but what we say is just our own opinion from the top of our head concerning things on this earth and without and ignoring God, this is foolish talking. Now that foolish talking may be couched in theological language. That foolish talking may be couched in very good language. It may be couched in filthy language. It makes whatever. When men speak in what they say is ignoring God, it's a foolish talk. It does four things about this. It does four things to a person. One, 
had consumed him. We talk this way, and soon what you are saying becomes part of your own being and part of your own character, and what you are saying, this foolish words that you're repeating, consumes you and conforms you to their foolishness. Secondly, it says there in verse 13, the beginning of his talking is folly, and the end of it is wicked madness. Continue to talk in this and repeat and assert this foolish language, and your own works and your own deeds will become wicked and sinful and rebellion against God. Notice what it says in verse 14. Yet the fool multiplies words. You know how they are. You, you know, we're, it's amazing, literally amazing, the, the number of books that are written. The daily newspapers that we receive today are larger and more print in them than some of the great masterpieces of literature of the past. It's a daily newspaper. Just stuff full of words. And when you read it, what do you read? Huh? You know as well as I do what to read. Full of foolish words. And what does it tell us? No man knows what will happen, and who can tell him what will come after. It's a great, massive dosage of ignorance. And finally, in verse 15, it says, The coil of a fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go to his foot. You know, dear one, one time I was in the midst and talking with some men and there was one of these men and he was waxing eloquent according to the philosophies of this world finally i just stopped him and i asked him a simple question i said sir you can look at me and you can tell that i do not have very long to live upon this earth i am facing death will you please tell me how i can die in peace and how I can find security in death, and how I can go to heaven. And he mumbled that he wasn't interested. You see, the toil of a fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go to the city. All this chatter of men, all these philosophies of men take you up to the grave. They, say, they have you face death. And then when you're facing death, all of these beautiful philosophies and theories of men, they run away and hide. And they leave you alone facing death and facing the darkness that comes after death. They have no word. They have no message. They have no way of showing you how to go to the city. They are the words Thank God we have the word of the wise man that tells us not only how to live here under the sun, but tells us how to go from here to the city of God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Second thing he wants us to see as you, as you study this, and you've got to uh, notice it very carefully, please, and that is he tells us good 
is affected by leadership. You look please, beginning there in verse 16, he says, Woe to you, land! Oh, woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad, and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility, and whose princes eat at the appropriate time for strength and not for drunkenness. Notice the contrast here. The land upon which he pronounces woe, and the land upon which he pronounces blessing. The land upon which he pronounces woe is what kind of a land? Why, it's a land whose king is a lad, an immature person, one who is just in the process of learning. He does not understand the way. He's not been in the way long enough to understand it. He is simply a, a, an upstart. He's facing things and facing situations and new situations every day and he has nothing to compare with. He's learning, but he's never learned enough to become the leader yet. The leadership has been thrust upon him and now he doesn't know the way. Woe to the land. His king is a lad. When you turn, please, just go ahead to the book of Isaiah there. In the third chapter of the book of Isaiah, God pronounces judgment upon the city of Jerusalem. It is a past. It has been accomplished already. Notice that prophecy. In verse chapter 3, verse 1, he says, For behold, the Lord God of hosts is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah both the supply and the support, the whole supply of bread, the whole supply of water, the mighty man, the warrior, the judge, the prophet, the diviner, the elder, the captain of fifty, and the honorable men, the counselor, and the artisan. He said, God's going to take out of the city the bread, the water, and those who are leaders and those who have ability. And what is he going to do? Look at verse 4. And I will make mere lads. This is a judgment of God. Yet, oh, much, how much today we find our land. How many of our homes today, as wives and children, look to the leader of the home? What do they find? A man? No. A lad. How many of our churches today, as they look to the leadership of the church, what do they find? Men? No. Lie. Immature. Undeveloped. Ignorant of the ways of God. Knowledgeable only of a few academic things that concerns his life. No root in experience of walking with God whatsoever. Such leadership, what happens to it? points out to you there in verse 18 through indolence the rapture sad through flatness the house leaks 
Men prepare a meal for enjoyment, and wine makes life merry, and, but, and money is the answer to everything. This is the attitude of these last. Indulging themselves, satisfying themselves in the pleasures of this world, concerned with the food, concerned with the wine. They only have the money. That's all we need. Money is the answer to everything. Now, in contrast with this, notice what he says there in verse 17. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility. What's he saying there? Whose king is one who has been inbred to lead and has the gift of leadership. Whose king is one who has been trained to lead. Notice what it says further. These princes eat at the appropriate time for strength and not for drunkenness. They are men who are disciplined. They're not concerned with their own pleasures. They're not concerned for satisfying themselves. They are disciplined men. They eat for the purpose of strength. They discipline themselves. Now, under this discipline, and having disciplined themselves and learned how to govern themselves, they are now the leaders. Father, you who are the leader of the home, what are you? A lad? Amen. What are you? One who just satisfies himself and goes off and does what he pleases that makes just to make you happy and you live by your mood and you live by by what makes you feel good is that the kind of a person you are what a tragedy to have such a home and such a leader of a home are you a person that has learned to discipline himself Weak in order to be strengthened you reach out and you find your life and you discipline the things that come into your life that are going to meet your needs and the needs of your family, the needs of your wife, the needs of your children, and you are concerned with them. And so it is the leaders of the church of God. Are they concerned? Are they disciplined men? The leadership in the soul. Notice that statement is there. They make money is the answer to everything. Sounds like it almost came from America, doesn't it? Hmm? Sounds like something you hear from Congress and the White House and two other places. Written along the, it's the idea of these men. Money is the answer to everything. Will you turn with me, please, to the book of First Timothy, chapter four? First Timothy chapter four. And look what the word of God says. Will you please? First Timothy chapter four. And verse 8. For godly, for, pardon me, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, or profit a little. You know, it's a good thing to be a jogger. It's a good thing to, to be a racquetball player. Hmm? Good thing, ladies, to get out there and play the tennis. It's a good thing to, to play golf if you walk and don't ride all the time. 
It's good to have bodily exercise. It's profit. It's, it's valuable. It's a good thing. But listen. What's the next thought? But godliness is profitable what? For all things. Since it holds the promise of the present life, it's profitable for this present life under the sun. And not only that, but what? Why, it has a promise for the life that is to come. The answer is not in money, but in godliness. You know, that's the word, by the way, that is used here, exercise, the discipline is the word for, you know, calisthenics. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. That's enough. I can't go any farther, you know. Now it says, what's profitable? One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. In godliness. Physical exercise has profit for a little while. But the practice, the continuous, constant practice of godly living according to the Word of God is the answer, not money. But godliness is the answer to the life that now is and the practice is to come. Now having pointed out this to us, he then moves on. And he moves on to his third point. He's pointed out to us the fact of uncertainty. He's pointed out to us the factors of uncertainty. Now he tells us how to face up to and live in the midst of uncertainty. And he begins to bear with the first, with the 20th verse. Look at it. Furthermore, he says, in your bedchamber do not curse a king. In your sleeping rooms do not curse a rich man. For a bird of the heavens will carry the sound, and the winged creatures will make known the matter. Oh, how many moments, yes, almost hour that I have spent over this particular verse. What is he talking about? Suddenly it banged and it hit me. What he's saying about it is you face the uncertainties of life. You face the, the crippling leadership around about us in every area of life. As you face the words of fools on all sides, what do you do? Don't complain and quit grumbling. Don't within your heart go on complaining and grumbling and, and fussing about the thing. Certainly, on every side you find inept leadership. On every side you hear the fool's words. What do you do? Spend your time within your heart growling and complaining about it? If you do, if you do, you will, this grumbling and complaining which comes from the heart will begin to be exercised by your lips publicly and your life publicly. And how many of you like a grumpy person? you raise your hand? Who likes, who loves to have dinner with a complaining person? Will you please get your hand up there? I can see it. Don't. Our reaction to the corruption of government, our reaction to the foolish words around us, is that of, we want to gripe about it, but don't do it. Because you will only turn into a grump 
and a complaint. What do you do? Look at them, he points out in chapter 11. He says, cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to the seven and even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. If the clouds are full, they will pour out rain upon the earth. And whether a tree falls towards the south or towards the north, whither, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. You know, it's very, very interesting to notice what some modern writers have said about this passage. They have come up with this skilled idea, uh, this unique idea that this passage is telling you that in order to live a good life upon this earth, you need to become involved in commerce. This casting your bread upon the waters means that you take your bread, your money, and you put it into shipping, and you get involved in commerce, and then you'll get money back from it. And you know the second verse, you know how they interpret that? Divide your portion to the seven and even to the eight, and how they divide, interpret that? They say, don't put all your eggs in the same basket. In commerce, don't invest in just one thing. Invest in many different things so that if one fails, the others will support and pick, pick up the flat. Ingenious. I looked at it, and I said, I wonder if these guys really have it in interpreting it this way. But you have to go back, and you discover that this is not a phrase unique Solomon. It is a phrase, this phrase, cast your bread on the surface of the waters, is a phrase that you find in Arabic poetry, in Persian poetry, in poetry from the Far East. It's a saying picked up by many, many wise men in the past, and it refers to one thing. And that is, you who have substance you who have the ability, don't be afraid. Don't hoard it. Share it with others who are in need. From the interpretation of Scripture, may I tell you that this phrase, the water, is a symbol repeatedly used in the Old Testament to refer to the Gentile nation. And he is challenging us. He says, take what you have. And don't just share it with those of your own nation. Share it to those with those who are strangers to you. Not only to your own family and to the own immediate acquaintance, but reach out to those who are in need, who are foreigners to you, and reach out and help those as well. And that second statement, divide your portion to the seven and even to the eight. The phrase is used over in the book of Amos there that says that God brings judgment for three sins and even four sins. It's not referring to a specific number, but it's saying to you, do not limit your helping just one or two or three or four or five or even seven people, the perfect number. But if there's an eighth person who is in need, reach out and help them also. As God enables you, as you are a cloud and you have the substance, reach out and help them. So it says that if the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth, and if God has blessed you and has met your needs, and your barns are full, and you have the substance that you have, don't hoard it. 
don't say to yourself, oh, I better hang on to this because I don't know uh, I'm going to need it later on. My friend, you do not know what you're going to need later on. And you may continue to hoard it and you may think that that's going to pull you through to the, quote, end. Only discover that it's not going to help you a single bit. What does God say to you? He has filled your barns. Now what are you to do? If you're a cloud filled with rain, you are to pour out that rain and blessings upon the earth. And he puts out a very interesting parable for whether a tree falls towards the south or towards the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. And the point is this, my friends, that what you do, the intent of what you're trying to do, reach out and to help other people. See, the result of what you're doing is going to last. It's going to abide. The money you have, the stores you have, the supplies you have that you put safely in your little bank, isn't going to abide. And you reach out to that other person, the one, two, three, four, five, six, and even eight person, and help that person. That's what's going to abide. For that fall, there it will He warns us, he says, he who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not be. We try to sit down and figure it all out today. You look at the economic situation that we're in, you know? Interesting economic situation we're in. Who's going to tell what's going to happen tomorrow? You try to dope it all out, and you say, well, let's see now. I figure that I'm, I'm, I'm now uh, at such and such an age, and I've got so much money, it'll that'll last me until 19, such and such. And when I die at that time, I'll have so much, so I'll use this. You try to calculate it all out. Finally, and solve it all. You look at the clouds, and you say, wait a minute, uh, I better hang on here. You're not help. You're not reach out. The challenges are further in those five and six. Look at it. Is just as you do not know the path of the wind and how the bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, you live in an uncertain world. The path before you is dark and obscure. You cannot for certainty know what is in front of you. So you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. So therefore, what are you to do? Verse 6. Sow your seed in the morning. And do not be idle in the evening. That is, sow your seed in the evening also. For you do not know whether the morning or the evening sowing will succeed. Whether both of them alike will be good. God says, reach out. Reach out to those in need and share with them. Don't let circumstances cramp your style. Reach out and share with them. Do what you should do today. Reach out to those needy people. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Take what you've got today. Use it for the glory of God and serve Him with it. Reaching out to other people to help them. Do it today. Do it now. You don't know whether you have tomorrow to do it. What a tragedy if you save it all up for tomorrow and you aren't around to do it and the time comes to do it. That's what he's trying to do. And of course, for us who are Christians, 
The message of this is, has a very special and unique meaning. As you and I have been entrusted with the bread of life. And we are to cast the bread of life upon the water. Not only upon Long Beach and its needy people, but upon the nations of the world. We are to send our young men, we are to send our young women with the precious word of God to the uttermost parts of the earth and to have the gospel of Christ preached to the uttermost parts of the earth. Thank God for Eric, for Clay, and their wives that are going to the Philippines that's opening a new field. Thank God for those missionaries that are going to Spain, opening a new field. But there are other fields in this world that are still in darkness with no witness for Christ whatsoever. And we as a church need to be involved, not only in reaching our own close Jerusalem here, but we are to reach the uttermost part of the city to cast our bread upon the world, among the nations. And we're to do our sowing here in the morning. And in the evening, may I ask you, my dear friend, are you doing that? Are you witnessing for Jesus Christ where you live? Where you work? Among the people whom you associate with? Do your relatives, have your relatives heard from you? That's the way to be saved, to you explain that to me. Have those people in the office heard from you as the way to be saved? Have you explained it to them? Those people in the block, have you showed them how to be saved? Have you explained it to them? Or you say, Pastor, you know, I think we must be tactful. I want to tell you there are more people going to go to hell without the knowledge of how to be saved for the simple reason that Christians have tried to be tactful than we want to consider. You say, oh, I'm waiting for that proper moment, just the right moment. Yes. You're looking at the cloud. He says, I'm just going to wait for the proper circumstances. How do you know that you're even going to be there in the proper circumstances at first? And I'm wondering if you would even recognize the proper circumstances when they occur. Ah, the point that he's challenging us with is that now, today, today, in the morning, it is so our seed. In the evening, we're not to be idle. We're to sow our seed. For we do not know what the next will be. In the morning, you do not know what's going to be at night. Sow your seed, therefore, in the morning. In the night, you do not know what's going to be the next day. So sow your seed tonight. You know, I was traveling across the ocean to go to France as a student. I was traveling with a young man, and two of us had dinner together at the same table in the uh, dining room and for 10 days we were on board that boat. It was one of the slow boats to Europe. And uh, 
Uh, we were there, and we were served by the same steward, a man by the name of DeVoe. No, we witnessed to that man about Jesus. But this young man, this young man had not done so. So the last day, just before we came to Lahav, we were having our last meal. And as we finished up that meal, DeVoe came to clear away the dishes and bring us a, our coffee and dessert. This man, young man turned to DeVoe and said, DeVoe, he said, you're from the South. You've heard the gospel, haven't you? And DeVoe just stopped what he was doing. He turned and looked at this young man. And he said, Sir, I've been serving you for 10 days. Are you just getting around to asking me about whether I know how to go to heaven or not? I want to tell you, that took place 30 plus years ago, but I've never forgotten. You've got friends. You've got neighbors. You've got loved ones. You've got people all around. Have you told them about Jesus? Or are they going to turn to you someday and say, Hey, why didn't you tell me about the gospel? You say, but I'm afraid to tell you. I'm afraid you'd become angry. You'd become upset. I'd be tactless in my way. Oh, my just think how upset they're going to be when they go to hell. Just think how miserable they're going to be and how angry they're going to be when they gnash their teeth in the day of judgment. And you stand there. You know in your heart you never even told them once. Oh, our Heavenly Father, send us out of here as thy people, dedicated to sowing in the morning and sowing in the evening. Send us out here as clouds that are filled with water, ready to rain upon needy people out there and help them in their needs. We know people who are in physical need. Send us out to help them, Lord. But greater still, we know people in great spiritual need. Send us out not with foolish chatter, Lord. Send us out with the words of life. Send us out to cast upon the waters the bread of life. That men might hear of Jesus and be saved. Yes, in Jesus. And